0: Zavagno is professor at history, of history at Bill Kent University in Turkey, whose work has focused on Byzantine history and culture, with a particular focus on urban life and early and middle periods. He's the author of Cities and Transitions, Urbanism in Byzantium, Between Late Antiquity and the Early, early Ages, Middle Ages, Cyprus between Late Antiquity and the Early Middle Ages, An Island in Transition, and most recently, The Byzantine City from Heraclius to the 4th Century urban life after antiquity. Today, he's been so kind to be here with us to discuss Cypriot continuity and indeed even agency as Cyprus navigates uh, between the Byzantine Empire and the Arab Caliphate. Luca, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you,
1: Andreas. It's nice to be here and thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. So your work is fascinating as it challenges the dominant um, narrative For the period. So bear with me while I read an excerpt from a website that I found. And here's a quote The pitiable condition of the Cypriots during the three centuries of the Arab wars can only be imagined. Thousands upon thousands were killed, and other thousands were carried off into slavery. Death and destruction, rape and rampage were the heritage of unnumbered generations. Many cities and towns were destroyed, never to be rebuilt. End quote. So this is generally thought of as a period of decline, impoverishment, destruction and dissolution. I think it's even been called the dark ages. So in your work, why is this traditional narrative problematic?
1: Well, I and mean, it is
0: as you as you mentioned, I mean you, this period has been described
1: or has been labeled as the dark ages, this doesn't obviously apply only to Cyprus, it applies to the Mediterranean in uh, in general, and I mean Dark Ages because, and I will return to this uh, later on, most probably, but mainly uh, because of the lack of sources that obviously are not primary sources. I'm talking about literary and documentary sources, obviously, which have not been there uh, in the same amount as for the classic classic period. So that's one of the one of the issues. Uh, that we are dealing with. So, as I said, it's not uh, only about Cyprus, but in particular, for when it comes to this, let's say, island. And once again, Cyprus is not the only the only island for which we have this kind of narrative. We tend to believe when I mean I'm talking about obviously the Byzantine Empire. Uh, with re- with regards to the Byzantine Empire, that what mattered was basically the center, Constantinople and the periphery was basically lost to 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 the empire and as a result especially in a period of time where another where basically the empire was going through uh, this huge loss of territory this demographic uh, downturn due to the to the arab invasion we tend to believe that the peripheries were basically no man's land okay i'm simplifying here but that's basically that's basically it and that's in a sense the reason why this traditional narrative has been has been uh, proposed or has been followed now it's true that or one should admit that uh, for other regions of the empire i mean archaeology has shed a lot of light, new light uh, and i'm i mean i'm using these two words the verb and Uh, shedding, I mean, this shedding light on purpose. Uh, Archaeology and, uh, I mean, material culture have shed new light on this period, which allow us, in a sense, to revise and reassess conclusions that have been taken for granted for too long. In the very case of Cyprus, there is this uh, chronological tripartition that historiography has always dwelled upon. Which is the fourth and fifth, and sorry, and partially the sixth century, being a period up to the beginning of the seventh century. Let's say so from the four, from the fifth to the beginning of the seventh century, but as a period of as the golden age of Cyprus because of the of the basilicas, because of the uh, of the of the great Christian characters like Epiphanius of Salamis, for instance, who, who were could be found, or could be documented. Uh, on the island because the island became an archbishopric and so on and so forth. And then you have the 7th to early 10th century as a period of dark ages of condominium, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, the uh, renaissance of Cyprus after the return of Byzantines on the island in 965. Archaeologists allow us basically to say that this is not true and that this uh, narrative of a catastrophe brought about by the, by the Arabs, which, in a sense, is, is the, uh, conti- a continuation, a kind of branch child of the Pyrenean divide. One also one should also admit that many people who have been working on Cyprus uh, in the past have been uh, under the influence of this idea of Henri Pyrene, very famous, Mohammed and Charlemagne, according to which the Mediterranean was or uh, experienced a huge divide after the arrival of of, of the Arabs so the, the Islamic conquest of the southern and uh, eastern coast of the Mediterranean and, and Spain as well, so there was this huge divide, and basically the the islands were in the in the middle of this divide, as I was saying before, no man's land okay nothing going on, nothing going on there well recently as I said archaeology material culture uh, the, the the ability to single out material indicators for the period, 7th to 10th century, has allowed us to see that all this idea of this Pyrenean divide, of uh, these two sides of the Mediterranean were not talking to each other, was not basically true. And so this reassessment of the entire period has allowed us to redefine or rediscuss. I'm not saying that this period is not problematic, to put what you were saying. But is a problematic in a different way. So that quotation that you basically that quote that you mentioned before is not it is not true. It basically doesn't mirror the reality on the ground uh, in the period I'm working. Uh, I'm working
0: on. You mentioned that one of the problems is we don't have a lot of. Literature from the period, I suppose, and in your research, you look at ceramics, you look at coins, lead seals, epigraphic evidence. Um, how have these sort of filled the gaps? Like, what do we learn from from all of this um, different primary evidence?
1: We learn we learn that there is much more connectivity here. I'm quoting. Uh, it's not by chance that I was talking about Piran before, because I think we should also frame the history of Early medieval Cyprus between late antiquity to the early middle ages, or early medieval Cyprus, um, in, uh, within Mediterranean, we should frame it in the uh, context of Mediterranean, within the context of uh, medieval Mediterranean history, which also has been, re- I mean, historiography on the subject has moved forward from Piren and from Brodel as well, the concept of long durée, not because Brodel was. Mm-hmm. Bring into the four very interesting concepts of idea, but because new work and in particular, and um, when I talk about connectivity, we mention obviously Horden and Purcell, the Corrupting Sea, which is basically the book on Mediterranean uh, on Mediterranean history uh, in the long durée, in a sense, is a is a continuation, in a sense, is basically stemming from Brodel's work, but I mean, uh, bringing, I mean moving it forward so when we 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 talk about cyprus in this period this connectivity that emerges so those that material material culture ceramics and seals and coins allow us basically to see how much more cyprus and yeah because i mean when i was writing the book on cyprus this is something that i should in a sense is uh, should alert you to when i was writing the book on on cyprus i was focusing I was trying to propose some comparative uh, or sketching some comparative examples and bring it to the fore talk about Sicily talking about Sardinia and the Bal but was not fully aware of how much in a sense Cyprus was part and parcel of this other school I mean some scholars have called it an insular system even here is maybe too much but a group I mean a, what has been recently Redefined or re as a Byzantine uh, uh, kinē or koine, depending on how you pronounce it. So, in a sense, you have this area of the empire which are definitely not no man's land, but they are the bearer or um, the area in which there is a connectivity between two network system or two exchange system, which was the cal- which is the or the caliphal one and the Byzantine one. In particular, in the Eastern and Central Mediterranean. So, when we talk about ceramics, when we are talking about uh, seals, when we are talking about coins, we see that connectivity in action. Here, when I said connectivity, you shouldn't—I uh, mean—fall into the trap and think, "Ah, well, everything is great, everything is fantastic, everything is connected, therefore, everything is good." Quite the opposite. Connectivity could also bring violence. Could also bring. Force movement, force migration, uh, and so on and so forth. But uh, nevertheless, through those indicators, material indicators, through those proxies, as you as you want, you could see, uh, or you could better grasp. This uh, idea of connectivity, which I think is central and has always been, in a sense, central to the history of islands, is part and parcel of the history of islands. The, the islands are coating between connectivity and isolation. That's basically their fate and their destiny. But I mean, connectivity is something that uh, I said is emerging quite well through, for instance, one example because I need to cite, to forgive me if I sound a little bit pedantic here, uh, there is this, this example recently, this amphora, this type of amphora, I call it globular, amphora globular because they they are, I mean, a, a peculiar shape, okay? They are not that big, they're 25, 30 liters, but you, you could find them in many uh, areas of traveling across, across, the, across this coastal and insular outpost of the empire. So this is one of the things that, Show us how much islands were connected within the Byzantine Empire, and if you look very carefully, you also found you also find uh, archaeology gave you the opportunity to find Islamic wares uh, of different of uh, different kinds which travel to islands like Cyprus or Arab Byzantine coins, even better in this very case which or Islamic coins which travel to Cyprus, so you see this connectivity in action or i mean it's more visible than from uh, from literary and documentary sources, which are basically silent on on this, and they don't talk too much about that, because they, as I was saying before, for the Byzantine from the Byzantine point of view, they are being written in Constantinople and for Constantinople. So that's one of the things that uh, our material culture and archaeology allow you to do: move away from Constantinople, move away from the center, and get into the so-called periphery, even if this model center-periphery doesn't work, uh, or right. doesn't believe right. it works that much.
0: So um, I'm a huge fan of talking about political events. I think it gives a little bit of context, especially for listeners who might not have a background in this period. So if you don't mind, um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions just to give us some context. Sure. So the former administrative capital in the Roman period is Baphos. And at this some time in this in this uh, period, it's relocated to Constantia, which is which was once uh, Salamis in the east. Um, When exactly and why does this uh, relocation happen? For the
1: audience, Paphos is located on the southwesternmost coast of the island. Uh, Salamis is located on the easternmost, uh, sorry, on the eastern coast of the island, 200 kilometers away from the coast. This happened in the mid of the 4th century. Big, a huge earthquake shattered the island in the middle of the 4th century. We don't know exactly if it was only one or two. So, the the emperor, the Roman emperor uh, Constantius II, decided to rebuild to new uh, Salamis. Uh, not that Paphos was not also uh, a focus of, of,
0: um, of uh,
1: restoration, but uh, became the center of attention. And that's why Salamis is also named Constantia, because he's named Constantia after the emperor who decided to an act of a virginism, that's the way it's called it, to basically sponsor a huge rebuilding, a huge building spate uh, on the island. So that's what basically uh, when the capital was transferred. But I mean, Salamis, sir. I mean, later on, in the period that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking about served also the the, the the purpose, the political. I mean, the the, the, the empire went through political, military administrative reshuffling, in a sense. We are talking about from the 4th to the early 7th century. Uh, Over those centuries, Cyprus, as a province, and the empire itself, uh, Cyprus as part of the empire, went through a huge uh, reorientation, in a sense. Once again, material culture is very important because we had a lot of uh, amphora, of a peculiar type called a late Roman one, which is basically telling us that there is a lot of supply basically traveling from Cyprus from the region I mentioned because Cyprus is very fertile. I mean, I'm sure your audience is familiar with the with the geography of the island. That's the reason why Justinian decided to use Cyprus as one of the places to supply his troops located on the uh, on the river on the river Danube. So you have this kind of to sum up, sorry to sum up, you have this kind of re- reorientation. Uh, reorganization of the empire after the, 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 the late 4th century which touched upon Justine and, uh, and which involved also Cyprus.
0: So the the Arab governor of Syria at this point, uh, Muawiyah, uh, stages a naval raid against Cyprus in the 7th century, in the mid-7th century. What precipitates this event and what why was Muawiyah so adamant in attacking Cyprus. Um, what, what, what did he think he was going to get out of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the very fact that Justinian, I mean, you know, the, the
0: big effort that
1: Justinian took in making the empire great again to reconquer uh, provinces which were long lost uh, to, the, to the empire. So the real, uh, in a sense, turning point in this uh, respect was the uh, arrival of the, uh, of the Arabs uh, of Islam, which, uh, as you know better than me, con- I mean, uh, took control of Syria, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, the, the richest, the wealthiest region of the empire, which, I mean, for some scholars, in particular for Ma- Mark witto uh, can now be called truly Byzantine, whereas before, for the period before, I mean, we have this concept of late antiquity or late Roman, Empire. I'm not going to, into, into that. is a little bit uh, more complicated. I mean, this is a little bit complicated. But therefore, for the for the begin at the beginning of the uh, pardon the first half of the seventh century. So when the 636 Battle of Yarmouk, the Muslim uh, conquered Syria, Palestine. As I tell you, the Caliphate was uh, now oh. a huge force to 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 be reckoned with on the part of the Byzantine Empire, a huge rival, and. So, I mean uh, that's what the the Arabic sources are telling us that the, the Arabs has always always be wary of the sea. Okay, the sea is not an environment uh, which the Arabs were familiar with at the very beginning, and therefore uh, they only slowly realized the importance of. I'd rather say uh, slowly is not the right word. They didn't immediately realize the importance of having a fleet. They did. They did. Do that in the in the second, I mean, the decade after the arrival in Syria-Palestine. And that's when Muawiyah, which was was not the caliph back then, not yet, forced, in a sense, the caliph, one of the four al-Rashidun, the heroic uh, so-called caliph, or try to convince better, and he managed to convince one of those caliphs to build a fleet and take control of, or start raiding, uh, across the Mediterranean. And obviously Cyprus being so close to Syria and Palestine was the first targeted 649. Uh,
0: so we have a sacking of 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 Constantia. and Was this isolated only to that city or were there other parts of Cyprus that were pillaged as well?
1: I mean, it looks like, I mean, uh, that particular episode, the first sack was basically a hit and run because the sources are telling us that when rumors of uh, Byzant- only rumors of a Byzantine fleet approaching was enough for Moabia to, to to pack and leave straight away. But after that there was another raid a few few years later which basically showed that caliphs were were getting more familiar in a sense or, or uh, much more aware uh, of how important a fleet or how good a fleet Uh, or important, pardon, uh, controlling Mediterranean and its island was. I mean, Battle of the Masts of the Coast of Lycia 655 was a huge defeat for the Byzantine fleet and that basically started uh, the, or basically allowed the Arabs better to mount a serious threat against Constantinople, because that's the point. Cyprus is at the beginning of a chain of islands, uh, which basically take you straight to or islands and coastal outposts, which can take you straight to Constantinople. So until 717, 718, there was the last siege of Constantinople. The reason why the Arabs were targeting Cyprus, as well as Rhodes and other Aegean islands, is uh, in order to get to Constantinople. It's very similar. I always say that it's very, very close to what you know the, the, the U.S. Navy did in the Pacific in 1942. For 1945, when they basically hop uh, on different island hop, yes, island hop exactly, uh, in order to get to to Japan. I mean, okay, then the, what happened in 19 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki brought this uh, this uh, this idea to an end. But the last hop would have been uh, would have been Okinawa, which they did, and then if I'm not mistaken, Hokkaido. So this idea of hopping on islands in order to get to Constantinople by using the same routes, by the way, that the uh, Kivika was the the, the ship. Uh, pardon of the Annona Kivika, uh, were basically sailing through is something that the the caliphs, first the the, the caliphs, uh, first, uh, they are Rashidun, and then when the Umayyad uh, took over, the, the Islam tried to do. Then things are changing after 717, things are completely completely on a, on a different, uh, I mean, slightly on a different page
0: after that. You, you mentioned. Um... A second ago, there was a, a second expedition that was carried out. One Arab source, though admittedly it's questionable, even claims to have erected a mosque on the island. Um, what has the archaeology uh, suggested?
1: Yeah, we are, I mean, and I'm sure we will return to this at some point, but one of the the, the, the problems that we have with Sephard, actually, I would rather say not only Cypriot archaeology, but very often with archaeology is the, the lack of, Publication. So we have the data, but they haven't been published. So what we know in this respect, or what has been brought to the attention of the of, of the of the scholar to the scholar attention, back in 1960s, were some excavation in uh, Paphos. Indeed, where allegedly um, Muslim quarter had been found in the area of the um, of the basilica called Liminitissa, which is close to the arbor. This quarter has been object of a huge, I mean, there was a huge debate if this, this quarter actually existed, what is the evidence about this quarter and so on and so forth. So we don't actually know if Paphos was the place where this quarter was, Arab quarter was created. What we know that archaeology is telling us is that we have Arab graffiti, we have um, on, uh, on some, um, in Paphos itself, on the columns, if I'm not mistaken, on the columns of the basilica itself or uh, part of those columns. What we have uh, are Arab Kufi graffitis on uh, uh, Amphora. What we have is, as I mentioned before, our Arab Byzantine coin and Islamic coins. What we have is, and this is most probably the most Exciting part, which goes in a sense beyond the quarter itself. So, in a sense, this the existence or not of this quarter has become irrelevant in light of this material I was mentioned, the coins and uh, the seals, because we have Islamic seals with uh, with inscription with inscription "Kubrus," which have been found in Cyprus and telling us that basically there were Islamic fiscal authorities. In charge of the region, in charge of levying uh, taxes in uh, in on Cyprus. So, true, the quarter could have been in Paphos or could have been elsewhere. Uh, the mosque that, if I'm not mistaken, is Al Baladuri uh, mentioning could have been in Paphos, could have been as well, but elsewhere. But we know that there was a Muslim presence or an Islamic. Uh, presence, uh, on Cyprus, so important that Muslim authorities were the deta- were sending, were detaching official, fiscal official to be in charge of it. The problem that we have for Cyprus is, uh, a problem of seeing what is not visible. And I will most probably return to that if, if I have the time, but seeing what is not visible. Because, I mean, archaeology is all, it's all about, I mean, digging out, right? Force And so making what is not visible, what is under the ground, visible, or at least enough in order to be interpreted. In Cyprus, we have this problem. We cannot
0: <laughs> dig out. Um We know that Muawiyah had to come to terms with Byzantine strength, and a treaty was ratified that both Byzantines and Arabs would share the revenue from the island. This is the infamous condominium. What do lead seals and coinage... Suggest about the nature of this condominium at the time. I mean, what exactly was it, um, and what can you tell us about this this unique structure for Cyprus?
1: I mean, I this this word is labeled condominium is a bit of, a little bit problematic per se. We know that for Byzantium, for the Byzantines, Cyprus remained a Byzantine province, and. That's what Constantinople believe. I mean, believe that's how Constantinople perceived Cyprus. That's how Constantinople uh, regarded Cyprus. But it's also true that Cyprus, on on a par with other islands or large islands of the empire, better uh, with the exception of Sicily, has never uh, be made a theme. Now, uh, what is the, what is the theme? I mean, the, in the from the second half of the seventh century on, Byzantium once, and in uh, face vis-a-vis the the Arab invasions which severed the the, the regions I was mentioning before from uh, from, uh, Constantinople, Byzantium basically went through a dramatic, I would rather say, say, reorganization of his administrative, political, military, uh, fiscal uh, structure, and introduced these uh, strategie, are called. So the, yeah, and then better known as themes, which, I mean, I'll put it very bluntly, it's a way to relocate large parts of the army in certain places uh, Former provinces of the empire allow the army to be in charge of those provinces and to to get their supply or their recruits for from those very regions. Okay, so uh, you have themes which popped up all across Anatolia, um, the Anatolicon, the Armeniacon, the Opsikion. I mean, there are so many. You have uh, themes which, little by little, when Byzantium uh, retook control of them of the Balkans, popped up in, in, the, in the Balkans, the Peloponnese theme, for instance, uh, is one of those in the, in the late 7th century already, beginning of the 8th century, and the theme of Sicily. The other islands, even if they remain under Byzantine control, I'm talking about large islands, talk talking about Sicily, I'm talking about the Balearics, I'm talking about Malta I'm talking about Crete, uh, they never became, and Cyprus itself, never became a theme. What does it mean? That we basically don't know which kind of authorities ruled those? Uh, they are called archontes in the in the sources, but archontes is basically a, a label, lord, yes, a label or a non de plume in a sense or whatever you want to call. Which means basically means anything and nothing. There were other areas of the empire, for instance, which were under the rules of duchies, or dukes. Pardon, they became duchies, Examples, Amalfi, the upper Adriatic Venice, uh, Venice, develop, the Duke developing into the Doge later on. Naples as well. Uh, it was another ducate. Um, so what, I mean, yes, it was a Byzantine province, but was not uh, on a par with the thematic provinces. True that there was also a province called the Carabiziani the, the first and the Kibirati later, which was basically a theme, which was basically in charge of Which was basically the fleet, the Byzantine fleet. Okay, but even that was not not the only fleet. We had a fleet in Sicily and a fleet of these Kibirreoti themes, which was basically based in uh, Antalya, so southern southern, uh, Anatolia. So, one thing is how Byzantine perceived, so, and try in a sense to, uh, through the sources, to uh, make people make clear that uh, Cyprus was, and a completely different story is the reality on the ground. So what what we don't know, uh, in a sense, it what's going, uh, what was going on in practical terms. We have seals of Archbishop of Cyprus, so we know that the Church of Cyprus was really important on the island. We have seals of these archontes. We have seals of all the Islamic authorities as well, and we have uh, Islamic seals. So that's why in my book I came up with this, or I tried to use this, this model uh, analytical model called the middle ground, which is not simply uh, a, I mean a model which advocates for an area in between, but it's also a model which can which uh, brings to the fourth the existence of a space. And so it's also a way to explain the speciality in a sense or could uh, accommodate special uh, inferences. so in a, in a nutshell, you have an area in which two forces are, which two forces are wrestling or try to wrestle from one another, at some point they realize that they cannot do that. It's basically uh, losing battle for both. And so they decided to leave it there. They, they know that they cannot exert full control on the area. They try their best, but they can't without wreaking havoc and without destroying everything. Therefore, they leave it as it is. Okay, so this is the idea of the middle ground which I think works really well, not only for Cyprus, but even for other islands, which are sort of in, in between. And it's not by chance that the Arab sources de facto recognize this situation for Cyprus and only for one other region in the Mediterranean, the Balearics, which also boasts Archontes, Byzantine Archontes, seals of Byzantine Archontes. And they call it Dar al-Ad, the area of the pact. I mean, which basically you have three, three parts involved: the local people, the Byzantines, and uh, and the Muslims. Which basically are there is this area which doesn't belong to anybody. It's the area of the of the pact. It's not the Dar al Islam. Uh, it's not the Dar al Arab, but it's the it's Dar al Ad, which is the area of the of this pact in which, in a sense, you don't it's not clear. It's very blurred in a sense. Mm-hmm.
0: This, is, this is really interesting because um, I remember coming across a word in your work. I've, I've never heard of this before, and I'm, I'm, I'm mispronouncing it for sure. The Fangumis. Yes. Um, these were the main actors in the construction of this middle ground that you talk about. And, and in fact, they were part of the Imperial Embassy. And this this I found interesting because in order to get to this middle ground, it suggests uh, a lot of agency amongst Cypriots. They were, they were, re- they were, they were, I-, I suppose, key negotiators in this. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on on who who these people were and how it contributes to the establishment of this middle ground?
1: Yes, this is a very very good question because I mean we don't see agencies through the sources. We don't see it very often. Okay, and for Cyprus, this agency is it's only. Uh, acknowledged through the embassies, which are quoted. Why? Because the sources, once again, Constantinopolitan sources, are mentioning that the court uh, sends those embassies to the, uh, in this very case, the Abbasid, the Abbasid Caliphate to Baghdad. It happened with the Fangumenis, and it happened later on with an archbishop of of uh, Cyprus in the, if I'm not mistaken, in the 10th century. So these Fangumenis are a local aristocratic family. Uh, who, as you as you correctly stated, uh, were called upon by the Constantinopolitan court to uh, to be part of this embassy to be sent to to the to the to the Abbasid uh, to the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad. So it looked like the center recognized that the people, and one can easily say that this fung- or can easily think or be led to think that those fungumenists, this aristocratic family could have been one of those uh, archontes or could have, uh, could have uh, been one of those archontes I was mentioning before. Well, anyway, the, the, the Constantinopolitan court seems to know, to recognize, to acknowledge the fact that the local people uh, know how to navigate through the interstices of, of these two uh, blocks, political blocks, uh, economic exchange networks, uh, as well, uh, and they know how to do it. So if you insist on the part, if there is this kind of uh, stress on the part of the center of Constantinople to include these people in uh, either the Fangumanis and later on a local uh, archbishop in uh, one of those embassies, to have them being part of one of those embassies because you want them to be there, because you acknowledge that they know how to negotiate Islands, I mean, and in particular here I uh, singling out the islands at the two extremes of the Byzantine Mediterranean, large islands, the Balearics and Cyprus, show this kind of abilities on the part of the local authorities. True, and I repeat myself, I'm quoting, I know that I'm quoting myself, it's not it's never good, but allow me to do that. To navigate through these interstate if we think of the, the Mediterranean, of these two um, and, of the interface in a sense. It's an interface, I think is the right way of putting it. And you have these islands which are at the interface uh, of these two political economic blocks. And in both those islands, Balearics and Cyprus, you see the local people, the local agents, the local authorities capable of playing on different uh, on different tables I think you can say that I mean this is a manner of speech that we have in Italian I'm not sure that uh, you can play different sides mm-hmm. and you can um, you can use manipulate and you have no uh, qualms in doing that for the Balearics the locals at some point were harassed by Muslim pirates, Andalusian Muslim pirates and the local authorities we we know there were our there we know that there were seals of Byzantine contests which at least, on paper, I mean, had their uh, allegiance or swore their allegiance to the Byzantine Empire. Well, they have no consequence whatsoever. and basically called the the, the Carolingian scene and said, can you help us? I mean, because the Byzantines cannot in this (laughs) particular situation. So can you help us? We have, I mean, we can recognize your authority or whatever it is. So same for, I mean, and this obviously doesn't apply to Cyprus, but because the barracks were far more distant and so on and so forth. But it looks like local people have this sort of agency uh, which the center could and is able to use, even if not always to uh, to understand. An example of why I'm saying that the center is not... I'm, I'm using this center-periphery dichotomy, which is I don't believe in, but for the sake of... Uh, simplicity. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 center doesn't grasp or grapple with. And the example of this is another source in the tenth century. It's very famous, Saint Constantine, the Jew, who is a pilgrim. Okay, who came to Cyprus through Antalya, not by chance. Uh, in the tenth century, he ended up on a little church on Cyprus, and to his dismay, actually more than dismay, to his uh, he was appalled by this. Uh, he found out that Muslims and Christians were praying in the same church on Cyprus and for him this was beyond grasp. This is something that could not be accepted. And as a matter of fact he packed and lived. So there are and we know from letters of Nicolaus Mysticos that there were there were Arabs also in uh, in Cyprus in the 10th century, well, true, Arabs are not necessarily Muslims, but uh, Nicholas Mysticos is basically telling, well, we always treat, treated well those Arabs. Therefore, uh, you sh- I mean, there was a moment in which the, the Muslims were on the rampage, uh, and uh, this is, I mean, a different period. But if you single them out, it's because you want to say, well, we are, we were, in that in, the, in that province, there was a kind of. Presence, minority or not, of Arabs, and we we treat them well, and everything was fine. You have to do the same with us. So there is an agency which we cannot once again fully see from the from the from the sources. Last example, and then I don't want to 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 bore you to death. We know from the from the Acts of the Eighth, uh, sorry, on the Nicaea II, the Ecumenical uh, Council. We we know that there were Cypriots traveling, regularly traveling back and forth from so back and forth to, to Syria. So if, um, we know that there is this relation this agency going on with I mean those Arab Byzantine coins, those Islamic Arab Byzantine coins in particular should have been used by people, by the by the local economy, by people uh, working or, uh, move, I mean, uh, greasing the wheels of the local economy. Who they were, they seldom appear in the sources. The fangumenis were one of those because they were aristocrats. It's always like that. But my idea is there were a lot of people, I mean, uh, who were familiar with this way of moving along, I mean, or uh, along the, the, the interface of these two blocks, if you want to call them like that.
0: In, um, in a really similar vein... You, there's, a, there's a quote that you have that I'm going to read from your book. It's, you write, It would be reductive to describe the role of local clergy in the Cypriot arch, archbishopric simply as custodians of orthodoxy. Instead, there is evidence of a fertile ground of complex political, economic, social, religious, and cultural urban-oriented relationships, both within and beyond the coast of Cyprus, in which the church played an important but far from solar-dominant role. And you go on later to say, They acted as real promoters of cross cultural exchange between the island and co terminus regions. What do you mean by that? There
1: is a historiographical tradition which basically stated that the only custodian, the custodian of the the Byzantines of Cyprus during the Dark Ages, okay, if you want to call it, was the the church and the archibishopric, the autocephalic. Archbishopric of uh, of uh, Cyprus, which is a narrative based upon, uh, among the other sources, uh, the icon of so-called iconophiles, so because the period, the, the period that you describe as the Dark Ages coincides also with the uh, so-called iconoclasm uh, or iconoclastic uh, era. You, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Uh, yeah, and therefore yeah. we. In the past, historiography had paid too much attention. Actually, paid a lip service to those iconophile sources, uh, which are the only, basically the only ones that we have for the period. Through, I mean, uh, and according to some of these sources, like for instance, the life of Saint Stephen the Younger, Cyprus was a bastion. Of the iconophilia in a moment of uh, in a period of time in which basically the iconoclasts took over Constantinople, the be- Byzantine emperors were iconoclast. Well, Cyprus is a place where iconophiles could. It's a this periphery is distant once once again. I mean, you play with this idea of isolation and connectivity of islands. In this very case, islands or islands like Cyprus are supposed to be isolated and far away from Constantinople, which we know was not the case uh, because people regularly travel to Cyprus, I mean, across this, I mean, along, during this period of time. So there is this idea that Cyprus was this kind of bastion of uh, iconophilia. The best, I mean, recently 2000, the year 2010, actually, John Holden and Leslie Rubaker had produced these two uh, seminal volumes on uh, Byzantium in the iconoclastic Era, which basically have prove that those sources are fictional, in particular the life of St. Stephen the Younger. So paying lip service to those sources is not the right thing to do. So believing that Cyprus was a bastion of the iconophilia is not the right thing to do. It's true that the the Archbishopric of of Cyprus was a huge uh, social, economic, political force, and that is also true that one of the, as I was mentioning before, one of the uh, Archbishop of Cyprus was part of uh, an embassy sent to the Caliphate in the tenth uh, in the tenth uh, century, and therefore that's what I, what I meant when I was saying that there is this kind of cross cultural exchange. It's also true that when the, the 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 Holy Sepulchre, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, okay. was needed to be restored from Cyprus, there were I mean the Archbishop sent. Cedars cedar trunk to, to help the church being being restored. So there is a role on the part of the church. On the one hand, uh, keeping obviously Cyprus, uh, Cypriot, urban centers alive. Uh, Salamis Constantia was or remain the capital and rem- until I would rather say end of the 8th, beginning of the 9th century and then remain the main religious center because of the Basilica of St. Epiphanius, the relics of St. Epiphanius because of the monastery of St. Barnabas and so on and so forth. But you have also the church or monastic, this is a work done by Nicola, my good friend Nicholas Bakirtis, the role of monasteries on the northern part of the island which at some point became even more important to Byzantium, uh, because of this proximity with southern Anatolian coast, and there is also once again within Cyprus, a reorientation. We wrote an article together. We call it uh, a, "an Island Without a Capital" because, I mean, we strongly believe that at some point Byzantium was without a capital, and you have this kind of reorientation with the, of the, 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 the settlement pattern. Uh, in political and administrative terms, to the north, with the huge role played by monasteries, monastic institution, in uh, in the on the Carinia range. So, as I was saying, there is this. It would be too simple to to talk about the archbishopric of Cyprus as simply a custodian of the orthodoxy of iconophilia and that's the reason why Cyprus survived as a as a byzantine outpost until basically the 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 sort of resistance until the byzantine empire could come back could strike back in 960 in 965 that would be in a sense as i say as a kind of uh, very very simple and wouldn't pay Good service to the role that the, the 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 archbishop and the church of Cyprus played, which was an important role, as documented, for instance, by seals as well on uh, on different areas of the, sorry, on different uh, yes areas uh, political, as I was saying, religious, economic, social of of uh, of Cyprus. So we shouldn't fall into the trap of believing into the sources which are not. Which are fictional. We shouldn't believe in this kind of redu- redu- reductive, reduc- I think, uh, explanation, very, very uh, minim- minimalistic, if you want. Uh, which, according to which, the Archbishop of Cyprus was simply the only institution which could keep the Byzantine light alive in, uh, in Cyprus, and we should rather think of uh, the Archbishop of Cyprus as one of those actors. Which played a role in
0: creating the middle
1: ground, in a sense.
0: Right. Now, you actually, you actually talk a lot about the the vitality of urban centers or, or of an urban center in uh, in Cyprus. Um, how how was this vitality expressed? And, and and maybe you can speak a little bit about uh, the archaeological record in the in this period, especially in these urban centers.
1: Yeah, I mean, this just goes back to the, the the quotation the the the, 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 the quote that you, you had at the beginning of the, of this conversation. I mean, it's part of this picture that has been painted of Cyprus as engulfed in a dark age, another uh, piece of this jigsaw, in a sense, uh, negative jigsaw, urban centers, in a sense, disappear. Especially the, there is a, basically a retreat from the coast and uh, basically, the, the, the life, urban life, as we know, disappeared. And if there were urban urban-like centers, they were located in the, in the, away from the coast in the move to the inland. That's, once again, too simple too, and basically not supported by, by the sources. Mind you, here we have a huge issue, which is methodological, if you want, uh, for reasons that are known to you and to the audience archaeological excavations cannot be conducted in the uh, in the northern half of the island and uh, since ni- 1974 uh, and i need to need to explain you why uh, and this is a huge issue because we are missing two or three key uh, urban sites the capital salamis constantia carinia in the north soli itself and therefore we can't have a clear picture or we cannot, in a sense, conclude anything about urban life in Cyprus. Actually, what we know, and is due to the work among the others of Salvatore Cosentino, proved that islands and Cyprus included, uh, experience and economic resilience well into the 8th century and less militarization that pre, than other areas, once again going back to the thematic system, that other areas of the empire went, I mean, or, or experience or went through. So for Salamis Constantia, I tried with the little evidence that we had and with a uh, with reassessment of archaeological excavation uh, that have been done in the past to prove in a sense that you have a something that happened in other areas of the empire. So there is not a collapse of urbanism. There is a refunctionalization of cities. So in my opinion, cities, in my work, I always stress that that, that this multifunctional model, cities performs functions, certain functions. Now, uh, in a certain period of time, some functions matter more than uh, others. Okay, And this also mirror uh, or is mirrored by the, uh, urban fabric, urban landscape, and so on and so forth. In the case of Salamis Constantia, the idea was one. I mean, this. I, uh, the idea was well. It, it, it basically chimed chimed with uh, uh, with this idea of discontinuity of uh, of uh, the classic classical polis. Urban life is coming to an end. The classical the, the 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 urban life is coming to an end. So all the amenities that we can see in classical cities are coming to an end. Therefore. Urban life, as it is, as it was, or urban life per se, disappear. That's that's basically not the case. It has been proved that this is not the case. That you have a, I mean, cities adapting to uh, adapting their functions to a new uh, social, political, economic uh, situation. I mean, at the empire, at an empire uh, scale, at an empire level, at imperial level. And therefore, the same applies to Salamis Constantia. It's not true that Salamis Constanze basically uh, abdicated to its role as Byzantine capital in the seventh century when the Arabs when the Arabs arrived on the Mediterranean stage. Quite the opposite. True, the walls were built. True, there was a sh- uh, the city shrank, uh, but it's also true that the arbor remained, and this is material indicators that I was mentioning before are pointing this out, but the arbor remained frequented. The Basilica of Campanopetra, which was a stone throw from the arbor, remained a pilgrimage site. I mean, we know that Vilibad really in the 8th century and other pilgrims later on in the 8th century visit the basilica and prayed in the basilica, and the basilica was basically a very important pilgrimage site because most probably had a, uh, is, was boasting a piece of the, the true cross. It does, and the very fact that you build uh, walls to protect a certain area to also exalt uh, a certain area of the city does not mean that the rest of the urban space was in uh, completely deserted, uh, and we know that this is this was not the case for other cities on islands like uh, I don't know Gortin for instance, in Crete. That different models of urbanism uh, were implemented in, for instance, in Sicily. I mean, at that cities, substantial cities like, for instance, in, in Sicily, like Syracuse, coexisted with more. Castral-like settlements, like for instance Enna, so the same applied to to, to Cyprus. Salamis Constantia did not disappear, and then we suspect other cities did not disappear. And that is the, the for Salamis Constantia, the agency once again of the Archbishop was central, obviously, to this. Most probably, the admin actually uh, the administration was still based in Salamis Constantia. Then, when the empire um, had or set different priorities in a sense when the southern coast of Anatolia became important, when uh, Antalya became uh, was basically established itself as an important center for the Byzantine fleet. Uh, It's all in a sense obvious that uh, Cyprus, in Cyprus you had this kind of reorientation of urban or the settlement pattern with the northern coast becoming more important, most probably with Kyrenia becoming becoming an, an important center, most probably a military, a military base for the fleet. That's, uh, that's the thing. I, I wish I could say more, but the, basically the sources are not allowing us to say more than this. There are other places which are for which we have int of information. You were mentioning there is this inscription from uh, from Soli, which is also another city on the northern coast of the island, which basically documented that after a catastrophe, which too often has been identified or been equated with an Arab raid, was probably was an earthquake. Uh, the city was rebuilt in the mid of the in the second half of the seventh century. So, if there was this amount of investment on a on a or an effort to refurbish a city on the northern coast of the island in the mid of the seventh century, it means that urban life on the uh, didn't simply run away. From the coast, true. Some that's life. Some urban centers, I mean, experience a downturn. Uh, obviously, Cyprus, as I was saying, was at the epicenter of the Annona Kivica, and that meant something until 642 when Egypt uh, fell to the Arabs. After 642, it's clear that that flow, uh, that that river, in a sense, metaphorically speaking, economic. And, uh, and political flow dried up uh, and it's clear that some settlements came to an end I'm thinking about Amathus for instance uh, on the southern coast of the island to
0: mm-hmm.
1: quote just a few but it does not mean that uh, the, the urban life com- is completely is complete was completely gone
0: going back I think I think listeners would be interested to hear this supposedly Justinian transplanted Cypriots abroad and I maybe the 7th or 8th centuries um why did justinian transplant cypriots from there to that's the Anopolis. yeah do we have any evidence of this and whatever for why did this happen cuz and and again supposedly he brought them back after do we have any evidence of this and why would he do that
1: no we have i mean this uh, this near the episode of near justinianopolis dated to 691 which is, if I'm not mistaken, is reported by Theophanes the Confessor, and his chronicle is another example of uh, we have to allow me to say that in brackets uh, we have to find a way to 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 see. Uh, the darkness, so the dark ages. When the Arabs are not involved in raiding the island, well, are the Byzantines themselves transplanting uh, or moving the population forcibly, and that meant demographic downturn and so on and so forth, that impoverishment uh, of Cyprus, Cyprus basically being a no man's land once again. Well, in this very case, the episode concerned Justinian II, or in as it is called, is labeled by the Byzantine, uh, by sorry, by the by the Byzantines themselves, the the, 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 uh, the one which no whose nose was cut because I mean uh, this is I think one of the if, if not only the few one of, one of the few emperors pardon who was Isaac second who managed to reign even if he was mutilated. So what basically happened is that he reigned for a for a, there was a first part of his reign then he was ousted for a, for a while. At the end of the of the seventh century, and then he managed even if he was mutilated, if they cut his nose and cut his tongue, he managed to come back. It's, it's a rather uh, heroic tale. He, he allied himself with the Khazar, with the Bulgars, and managed to uh, to sneak back into Constantinople through a through a um, through the pi- a pipeline, which was cut. There was no water, so it's 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 a very it's a very peculiar in a sense uh, story. Uh, anyway, Justinian the Second in six hundred ninety one uh, decided to to build uh, uh, a city named after himself. Okay, many emperors have done that from Constant for Constantine, obviously to Justinian the First. Right, Justin um, is uh, Justinian Justiniana Prima is called in uh, in Serbia is another example. Well, anyway, Justinian the uh, Second decided to to build. Is the city named after himself, and uh, he identified a place uh, not far away from Sisycus on the uh, Sea of Marmara, is a is a place which today is called Arta. Um, Arta, I mean, I need to check, and it doesn't from the top of my head. Anyway, it has it has been surveyed this place, so this place has been has been uh, there, there, there has been published the the, the the survey has been published, so we have at least uh, some evidence of the the ruins of that settlement. Anyway, so why he did that? He did that because, I mean, Cyprus was uh, religiously a place which could boast, one of the few places, one of the few provinces which could boast an autocephalic archbishop. So this autocephalic archbishop of Cyprus was established in the late 5th century. Uh, Cyprus before that was under the jurisdiction of Antioch. He managed to, to gain uh, his autonomy, that was autocephalic means. I mean, the local archbishop can name, can decide who the other bishop on the island are going to be. So the archbishop of Salamis was the one in charge of uh, creating or making the other bishop, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 11, on, on the island. So the reason why he transplanted the population from Cyprus to this near Justinianopolis was exactly because of that, because he wanted, with the archbishop at their head, He wanted to, what is his city, to benefit from this uh, very preeminent, very important religious authority. Obviously, it was really artificial. It was, an art. I mean, in the middle of, uh, sorry, at the end of the 7th century, when the empire was, I mean, struggling, in a sense, to survive, to quote John Holden, he had the empire that would not die, is the title of his book. And I think it it really, it really applied to this period, the, the, the late 7th, 8th, and early 9th century. So that's the reason why this migration, and this is part of that Mediterranean connectivity I was mentioning before, the tragic side of Mediterranean connectivity. We have other examples of forced migration of Cypriot, this time not to come back because the Cypriot transplanted to the end, Justinian came back after Justinian lost his throne the, for the first. I mean... Uh, for the first time, I mean, for the uh, mutilated and so on and so forth when he lost his throne. Uh, so they return back, but there were other Cypriots that another Byzantine source, Anastasius Sinai, in these questiones and responsiones and questions and answers is mentioning that there were Cypriots, which had been taken by the Caliphs and transplanted and moved to one of his uh, estate, farm estates on the, on the Dead Sea uh, or around the Dead Sea. So we have this migration force, in a sense force migration transplantation of population. This is part of the, the tragic part of connectivity, but does not mean that the size, the extent, the, the length uh, in terms of chronology of this transplantation are catastrophic to the uh, Too often we tend to believe that these events are wreaking havoc for good on an, on a region or on a province. There are events which are so, an example was the earthquake, for instance, before, which basically forced the change or the orientation or played along, if you want, which was, was really most probably already planned or for that period. But, I mean, it does not mean that, as I was saying before, uh, after this transportation, after this, Cyprus was turned into a no man's land. Or, for what is worth, other regions of the empire were turned into 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 a no man's a no man's land.
0: Hmm. How and how and when was Cyprus eventually reconquered? I mean, uh, i.e., back into the Byzantine fold. And, and this next question is it might it might be beyond your scope, it might be outside your expertise. But when Cyprus was "Quote unquote," brought back into official Byzantium, had things changed? Were there were there noticeable changes, um, for example, in language or religious practice, or was there generally continuity?
1: Good. So we, we do we do not know. I mean, uh, Cyprus came back in 965 to the to the empire that was the uh, famous. Byzantine expedition, uh, Theodor if I'm not mistaken, taking the island, in a sense, into Byzantine full control, which is a, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's a contradiction in terms, because I mean it has never ceased officially to be a Byzantine prov- province, so therefore it is We right, right. need to, to stress that, that this kind of this kind of moment. But in terms of population and language, we simply do not know. We, we do not know. The sources are not telling us. I mean, this is something that this is more gut feelings or more the, the suspect. That, but I mean, uh, it's also true that that applies to the to the Ottoman period later on. Pardon, when Cyprus became part of the Ottoman Empire, 1571. Uh, I mean, it looks like uh, Cyprus, and most probably is not the only place in the Mediterranean, but Cyprus, since we are talking about that. Uh, about the island is one of those in which which thrives and prosper in a sense or which is uh, really sticking to the eyes when it does not fully belong to uh, once again the concept of middle ground fully belong to any power because I mean during the Roman period during that is uh, the, the Byzantine uh, era and post 965 uh, during the, when the Ottoman conquered the island Cyprus became just another province of the empire. There is nothing special about Cyprus during the Pax Romana. And later on, when the Byzantine came back, it was a Byzantine province per se. The most exciting, or I mean, I would rather say the most interesting for from my point of view, uh, moments of the history of Cyprus are those in which Cyprus did not belong. I mean, for instance, during the Lusinian period, the Venetians were involved, the Genesians were involved, and you name it, you got it, was, it was involved. And... There was a lot of things. So Cyprus really, Famagusta became the third most important uh, in the in the in the early 14th century, the third most important city in the Mediterranean, for instance, after Constantinople and Venice, more or less. So, in this period of time, the Dark Ages—I mean, so-called Dark Ages—in this period of time until Cyprus came back, uh, we simply do not know the language, how much of the local population, these Arabs that Nicholas Mystikos is mentioning, even if they are not necessarily Muslims. Were ethnically, for instance, were they that uh, were they that different? I mean, we know at going back to those mer—I mean, to those sailors who traveled back and forth from uh, Gabala in Syria to Cyprus—but definitely they must have spoken Arabic, otherwise it would make <laughs> make not much sense to travel to travel back and forth uh, in order to to pursue whatever whatever they were doing. We know that there were, as I said, Kufic inscription on amphora, so there were amphora transported. We know there were amphora transported from Syria, Palestine, and so on and so forth. They were uh, Arab Islamic coins. So in terms of language and ethnicity is a big question mark. The sources are basically not telling us who lived in Cyprus, the size of the population, how many came back, how many left, how many stayed, and so on and so forth. Obviously, it's the empire the empire, the structure of the empire or the, the, what's going on at the empire level that changed after nine hundred There is this kind of bouncing back, if you want, under Nikephoros Fokas, under Tsimiskes, under the Macedonian uh, dynasty with Byzantium being uh, again a force, I would, call, I would say a regional, an Eastern Mediterranean force to be reckoned with in face of the disaggregation of the Abbasid Caliphate. In a sense, it's... Uh, jonathan phillips recently in a book on a book in a book pardon about saladin call it an eastern mediterranean superpower Byzantium. I in this i mean in a slightly later period but i think it applied from the for, for the period from the 10th century from the 10th century on certainly was much more under byzantine control that's for sure i mean the, the, we don't have the archontes anymore We we have People sent from Constantinople. So, not most probably not locals or not fully local people, but we have also an administration or the agenda being much more uh, set, much more prominently from Constantinople. And we have uh, Anna Komnina talking about that and so on and so forth. What was going on before and after this period to look up? Huge question, huge question, Mark.
0: I want to end with um, a quote from your book, which I thought it was um, a great quote. You write, paradoxically, as it may seem, no matter how much two conflicting hegemonies gnash their teeth in face of one another, Cyprus remained a bridge between the two, a bridge that could be more often than not peacefully crossed by pilgrims, ambassadors, and merchants, a place where two opposing hegemonies defined the cultural, political, and economic coherence of the whole island. Luca, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us your wealth of knowledge. It was a real pleasure
1: Thank you, Andreas. The pleasure it was all mine. I mean, it's, uh, as you were saying, Cyprus is per se a, a beautiful island with exciting history, with, as you were mentioning, uh, architectural art, uh, which is, in a sense, as a sense, as you were saying, too often uh, not fully acknowledged. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's been great to work on, on and in and on the island uh, for seven years. And it. it and I'm, I'm glad that you that you found what I said, and I hope the audience the same.